Sara Upandita has a kind of trick question that he asks people at a certain point in the retreat. He'll say, approximately how many breaths can you be with before your mind starts to wander? The reason that it's a trick question is that they believe that a good degree and a developing degree of awareness will reveal the fact that we can be with maybe one breath before the attention starts to wander, maybe two breaths, maybe four breaths. But if you say something like, oh, I can be with the breath for half an hour, or I can be with the breath for 45 minutes before my attention starts to wander, they believe that you are just so spaced out, you don't even notice what's actually going on. And of course, there's something inside most or all of us that wants so much to be able to say, oh, I can be with the breath for an hour before I get lost in thought. And yet it's not at all the right answer. Awareness reveals to us how consistently our attention wanders to the past, to the future, to judgment, to analysis, to fantasy over and over again. This is expected. So if this is what you see, this is right. Sometimes I've been in the back of the room listening in on people's interviews when he's asked this question and I've heard people say, oh, I can be with the breath for 45 minutes without a wandering thought. And I sit there and I think, don't say that. (laughs) If you notice continual, incessant wandering, that's right. (laughs) The question is, what happens in the moment when you recognize that? Can you gently let go, return the attention to the present moment with the primary object of feeling the breath or feeling the body, hearing a sound? Especially in the beginning of a retreat, There's a huge adjustment to a relative lack of sensory stimulation, to excitement, to activity. Sometimes it seems to me as though there were these two voices in the mind. The first voice says, as you sit here, well, there's nothing happening here. I might as well go to sleep. So even if you slept 12 hours last night, as soon as you walk in this room and you sit down, you fall asleep. The other voice says something like, well, there's nothing happening here. Let's make something happen. And so there's a torrent, just a cascade of fantasy and images and creativity and the book you always wanted to write and whatever. It just comes flooding in. These are the kinds of experiences that are most extreme in the beginning. And so this is really the hardest time of the retreat. There are always ups and downs. This is is expected and natural. But the beginning tends to be just the most difficult time because of that adjustment. What you need to beware of is the thought that says, oh no, 70 more days. (laughs) or 76 more days, exactly like this sitting, fast asleep. (laughs) And there's something to be learned in that as well, because we have the tendency to take 
our experience of the present moment, project it into the future, be certain it's not going to change ever, and try to bear that fact all at once right now. So even seeing the tendency of the mind to do this is quite instructive. We begin, as always, just relax, listen to sounds, feel the the natural flow of that awareness where you do not need to change or judge or create an experience. And with that same open and spacious awareness, we feel the body, we feel the breath, Today I'd like to add particular sensations in the body to the field of awareness. If you're sitting, resting the attention in the feeling of the breath, and a sensation should arise somewhere in the body that is strong enough to call your attention away so that it is the predominant object of the moment. At that time, that sensation can be the meditation object. It may be pleasant, it may be unpleasant. See if you can make a quiet mental note of just what you're experiencing in the moment directly without projecting it into the future, without comparing it to the past, with that same open, spacious awareness with which you listen to sound. Be with the sensation for a few moments. Watch to see if it changes. Perhaps it's, it's a painful sensation. As you observe it, it may grow stronger. It may grow weaker. It may move around. It may stay just the same. There's no one right answer. But it is more that spirit of exploration. What am I actually experiencing? Is it changing? And then return the attention to the feeling of the breath. sitting, any of the instructions. Okay. (laughs) I want to say just a few words about the interviews. If all goes well in the computer world, then we'll be beginning interviews tomorrow. Um, The interviews are scheduled for 10 minutes apiece, and it's both literal and symbolic. You know, uh, as he instructed, and as we'll get into more, um, it is possible to actually use the noting in that way. 
as, as a way of bringing your attention closer to each experience. But it also has, has a, a symbolic meaning, which means could you be aware of it? Um, could you be aware of it with this distinct quality of awareness, which is not judging it, which is not adding to it grasping or aversion, which is not projecting it into the future or comparing it to the past? Um, so that that is the most fundamental meaning. If if you use the actual technique of mental noting, it's to support that. Okay, did you hear the question? Um, I think there's a difference between the uh, spatial relationship to the pain and the, uh, and the openness of the mind or the heart to the pain. Um, there are times when it is more useful to just do a kind of pinpoint awareness so you're feeling just the most acute or intense point. You're not trying to take in a big area. There are times when it's more useful to step back and to be with it in a broader way. Um, That isn't so much what I mean when I talk about being close or far away, but more the the, uh, spirit of exploration that we might have with the pain, whether we're open to it, interested in it, paying attention to it, or we're filled with fear and resentment and um, and drawing conclusions and judgments and all of that. Um, the question was about uh, rather subtle means of trying to get rid of the pain. Um, it is very normal. And, I mean, of course, you know, it's natural. Um, in terms of moving, it might be fine to move, but generally speaking, if we can sit comfortably and sometimes change the way we sit so that it's not a big strain on the body... Um, then the more still the body is, the more still the mind will become. And it's also interesting, you know, to uh, hang out with feelings, both physical and emotional, that we normally don't spend much time with in ordinary life because uh, somehow they're outside of the realm of what is acceptable. So we'd say, you know, spend a little while seeing the pain, you know, feeling it, seeing what happens in your mind in response to it. See the difference between being with it in the moment and being with it as I was with it, you know, with, with a huge imagined future and all of that. But don't get into a struggle with it. You know, it's not a question of endurance and, and trying to sit with, 
your teeth gritted, you know, and somehow making it through, it doesn't make any sense, you know. It's to be as relaxed as possible um, and to have your mind as open and expansive as possible with it because the question isn't to be with pain or the point isn't to be with pain, it's really to be open with everything. And so our range, which may have been somewhat limited both in terms of pain and pleasure, gradually increases, you know, as, as the mind opens. And in terms of trying to relax the, the muscles and, and all of that, I wouldn't do very much of that. You know, I mean, you might inevitably do a little bit of that, but since the point really isn't to make the pain go away, but to continually open our minds, um, at, at some point, you know, that, that would just be too complicated. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. I know several of you have heard one or another of us talk about the very first day that we came here and looked at this building to try to decide whether that nonprofit organization which had been formed should buy it or not to use as a retreat center. Those of us who were here then were quite torn. In some ways it seemed the perfect place and in other ways it seemed a completely overwhelming possibility. We had just been back from Asia for a few years. The place seemed enormous. We wondered how many people would ever be really interested in doing this form of practice. So we were quite confused. We took our, our debate to downtown Barrie to have some lunch. And in the process of just walking through the town green, we saw what was then there. It was a monument. Engraved upon the monument was the Barry Town motto, which turns out to be tranquil and alert. <laughs> so we looked at that and we thought, well, this is an omen. You know, any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert deserves to have a meditation center in it. And so we did it. We bought it. <clears throat> and you'll see if the you know, you notice as the police cars go by that it's on the, the door. It is the Barrytown motto. And so this is the perfect expression, actually, of the balance that we strike in practice. It's both deep tranquility and powerful alertness. This, this space or this stance, this relationship toward our experience is something that can be extended to every aspect of our experience. And this is the meditation practice. It doesn't matter what we are looking at. What is more significant is the degree of tranquility and alertness with which we are looking at it.
rather than go on, <clears throat> there are a few more layers or levels to the instruction which we'll complete in the next few days. But for today, I would just like to repeat what we've gone through so far. <clears throat> Remember, the essential point is this balance. Begin with perhaps listening to sound and feeling into that relaxation the natural awareness that springs forth in the moment of listening. You don't have to contrive anything or fabricate anything. You don't have to make anything better or try to stop it. Bringing that same sense, that sensibility to feeling the body feeling the breath, letting your attention settle into a primary object such as the breath. You don't have to worry about what's already gone by, nor get ready for what has not yet come. It's just this breath right now. You can make a quiet mental notation of in and out or rising, falling to go along with the feeling of the breath. And then if sensations in the body, either pleasant or painful, arise that are strong enough to take your attention away from the breath, open fully to whatever that experience is with tranquility, with alertness. The same quality of natural awareness that was brought forth by listening to sound. Make a mental note of just what you're feeling in this moment. Observe to see if there are any changes and see if you can bring your attention back to the breath. Perhaps not. Maybe the sensation is so strong it's compelling. You can move the, have the attention move back and forth. Sometimes mind states or emotional states arise which are strong enough to take the attention away from the breath. This may be one of the five hindrances. Grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. Maybe fear, maybe loneliness, maybe joy, maybe delight, maybe faith, maybe enthusiasm, whatever it is. Once again, connect to it as clearly as you can as an experience in the present moment. You don't need to prolong it, nor be afraid of it. Use the mental noting to help point the attention to that act of simple recognition. This is what's happening right now. Sometimes thoughts are the most predominant object. They arise in a way <clears throat> it's strong enough to take your attention away from the breath. Once again, try to use the mental noting, either in a very simple way, just thinking, 
don't have to judge or be evaluative of the content of the thought. Sometimes a more specific notation is very easy, planning, remembering. Note it, observe it. Once again, see if you can let go, bring the attention back to the breath. Sometimes what is happening is of less interest than the fact that it is quite pleasant or quite unpleasant. It's that feeling tone to it can make a mental note of pleasant or unpleasant. And again, in all of these instances, it doesn't really matter, and it is certainly outside of our control in terms of what is arising in our experience. The key question is the degree of balance, and particularly the balance of tranquility and alertness that we bring to bear in observing it, in feeling it, in being with it. Do you have any questions about anything you've experienced in the sitting or the walking practice? Anything about the instructions? Okay. Uh, I have two announcements to make. One is that um, it seems that we are alphabetically unbalanced and that uh, too many people have been going to the first lunch as a result um, and they've been running out of food. So uh, there's an announcement on the board switching the alphabetical distribution of lunch um, so that the people, I'm not sure which letters it actually is, but the people who had been going to the second lunch are now asked to go to the first. And moment, listening to sounds or feeling the body. <clears throat> then allow your attention to rest in the feeling of the breath as it's appearing without contrivance, without trying to improve it. The breath is happening anyway. Feel just one breath at a time. If sensations or images or sounds, emotional states, thoughts, 
any of these arise in a way that is strong enough to take your attention away from the breath, pay full attention to whatever this experience is. That same quality of open, spacious awareness. Simply being with, directly, what is appearing in this moment as much as possible without adding judgment and interpretation, comparison, projection into the future. Simply be with it. And bring the attention back to that natural feeling of the breath. All of these objects are arising anyway. We don't have to do anything about them. They arise, they pass away. Do you have any questions about your practice, sitting or walking? Yeah. Uh, with respect to metagrams, um, can you speak about how it relates to uh, understanding and experiencing emptiness and selflessness? <laughs> I, I see that the phrases are Okay, uh, the question was about the relationship of metta practice to an understanding of selflessness. Um, in some ways, uh, metta practice is not particularly about that realization. Um, it's working on a, a relative level where there is a sense of oneself, of others. Um, but ultimately, I think what it does is dissolve that uh, that feeling or that um, 
created boundary between self and other. That's one reason why we use the same phrases, if possible, for ourselves and then these different categories of beings because we come to appreciate that a lot of the the distinctions and the um, separations that we make are are created boundaries. They don't inherently exist. They're assumptions that we make. And as these, these assumptions or these boundaries dissolve, we get a tremendous sense of, of interconnection. One of my favorite stories about metta happened to um, this friend and colleague, Sylvia Forstein, whom some of you know. Uh, she was teaching here one winter and then got on a plane to go back home to San Francisco. Her plane stopped in Chicago and then took off again. She said about 40 minutes out of Chicago, the pilot got on the PA system and said, we've developed some trouble with the hydraulic system of the plane and we're going to have to turn back to Chicago and land, but don't worry. <laughs> um, the uh, flight attendants will now instruct you on the procedure for an emergency landing. And uh, shortly before we do land, they'll be coming around the aisles and collecting all of your shoes and your eyeglasses <laughs> and the pens out of your pockets. I couldn't quite figure out that last bit, but I think it's because if you go down an emergency chute, uh, they don't want these things getting caught in, in anything. So so Paula said, now don't worry, but uh, you will be instructed in all of these things. And um, Sylvia said, at that, from that point on, uh, the pilot got on the PA system every five minutes to say, we'll be landing in 35 minutes, and then we'll be landing in 30 minutes, and then we'll be landing in 25 minutes. And at uh, some point in that, early on, she began to do metta practice. And she has a, a rather large family. She has a husband, four children. At that time, three of them were married. She had five grandchildren. And again and again, she did the metta phrases directed toward these beings that she loved so much. Just again and again and again. And then uh, the pilot got on the PA system and said, we're going to land in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And the flight attendants, in fact, did go around and collect everybody's shoes and all their things. And Sylvia said she had the thought, well, in five minutes, either I'll be dead or I'll be alive. And again, she went back to her metta practice, but she said at that point, there was no way that she could just create this boundary around these people that she knew so well and loved so much in this life. The only way she could do her metta practice was toward all beings everywhere. And so that's what she did for the next five minutes. And then the plane landed. She said it was a landing like any other landing might be nothing special. But I, I really believe metta is about that kind of moment when it's not through having an assumed spiritual sense of ourselves that we say, well now, 
you know, now I meditate, so I love all beings. And it's not through having uh, some very deep and painful negative feelings that we're trying to deny and uh, superimpose on top of this lovely little veneer of metta. It's through the actual dissolution of that seeming boundary. We all draw those lines around ourselves or around a small group of people or around a small group of people excluding ourselves. Somewhere we have these kinds of barriers erected. And that's an incredible moment when they disappear, not through force or control or pretense, but they actually are not getting the kind of delusion that they need to, to be sustained. And so they just, they drop away. That's an incredible moment. And wisdom really brings us that, the wisdom of seeing the truth of non-self. And also metta brings us that, because those, those seeming differences definitely dissolve. Working with thoughts and being mindful of thoughts uh, is very tricky. You know, it's, it's quite subtle. Um, that's one reason that we use the mental noting, actually, is because it gives us an ability to be with the thought, to see it for what it is, without either being afraid of it or feeling, you know, this is wrong, I've got to make this go away, or getting lost in it. Uh, sometimes we joke, you know, we say, okay, here's, say, five or ten or fifteen or twenty minutes in a yogi's life. And you sit down and you feel the breath and then you have the thought, I wonder what's for lunch. And then you have the thought, oh, lunch yesterday was really good. I should try to get a recipe for that when I leave. And then you think, I think I'll become a much stricter vegetarian when I get out of the course. That would really be good for, for health and um, you know, it feels right ethically. But in order to do that, I think I'll have to go to that new bookstore that just opened up and get some good vegetarian cookbooks and that would be really helpful. And while I'm in the bookstore, I think I'll get that book on Greece because the next time I can afford to go on a vacation, I'll probably go to Greece, or maybe I should go to France. Maybe I should go to France. You know, and, and then you kind of walking down a street in Paris <laughs> in your mind and kind of come to or surface. And what's extraordinary about that is that mostly the last thing we can remember thinking is, 
I wonder what's for lunch. We just get swept up, we get subsumed in this chain of discursive or associative thinking. And the whole time, and that's a fairly innocuous example, but often, the, you know, as we're lost, we're absorbing the tension of all of that hope and all of that fear and the desire and, and the anguish and all of that is going on to our detriment. It's just like adding a great deal of stress even as we're lost in thought. And what we're trying to do in the process of meditation is not actually cut that because we can't but to be aware of it as it's happening, to know that we're thinking as we're thinking, to know what we're feeling as we're feeling, and to shine the light of awareness on that whole process. So simply to be able to say, I'm just thinking, is quite good. If it's obvious that it's planning or remembering or judging, something more specific about the thought, without a struggle to find that correct label, then that's fine too, you know, that's very helpful. Uh, But it doesn't matter, even just to note thinking is really quite enough. Another thing that's useful about that is that the tone of voice in which you are noting, uh, which only you can know, (laughs) uh, is, is some feedback system as to how you feel either about the content of that thought or about the very fact that you're thinking again. So really try to work with that tone so that it's gentle, it's accepting, it's an act of recognition. Oh, there's thinking going on. Well, um, it is tricky sometimes, um, and, and there is a lot of freedom and flexibility and creativity within that practice. Uh, so you can, at times, use particular phrases, but um, the general guideline is to try to use the same phrases or very similar phrases so that uh, as we move from ourselves to the benefactor, to the friend, to the neutral person, to the enemy, to all beings. Uh, There's a growing appreciation of that universal wish to be happy, that really we all want the same thing, and that that happiness um, and freedom and peace and love and compassion serve not only ourselves, but they do serve all beings. So in general, it's, it's good to try to use uh, 
at least similar phrases. You know, if, if you're using more than one, which is also probably good, um, to try to have some of them be the same as you, as you do these different categories. It's fun. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens when we get to the enemy. Whether we want them to love themselves exactly as they are, <laughs> or whether. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Last question. Yeah. 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 I think they're all, there's a whole variety of skillful ways. You know, everything that you described um, really is a part of that. Uh, one is really not to deem it the enemy, you know, to see that it's, it's um, believe it or not, impermanent state, <laughs> that even if it's arising repeatedly, it is coming and going, uh, that the aversion to it only makes it worse. Uh, because then there's tension and dislike as well as fatigue. Um, to understand that it's a kind of energy imbalance that you might address by doing different things. Um, and to also work with, uh, it's particularly the sense of aim that's said to be quite powerful or connecting, you can say. It's said to be powerful in dispelling some of those clouds and just as you try skillful, different skillful means to be as lighthearted as you can about that. Um, because we're all different and we all have, have different things going on. And uh, as Joseph, one of Joseph's great mantras is, there's always something. You know, so if it weren't this, it might be restlessness or it might be something else. And so it's not... Uh, you know, it's not a unique problem that uh, when you come to the end of which will mean there's only clear sailing from now on. You know, our practice is the, the open-hearted acceptance and clear seeing of just what is happening. So I'd work first with that, trying to be with the fatigue, trying to see its different components and what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind. I'd also work with trying to change your energy, um, you know, sit with your eyes open, uh, stand up, walk, walk outside, do all of those things. Um, I was just telling someone the other day that in my first retreat, uh, it was in India, the first time I ever sat, and um, 
all of the women slept in the corridor of this place, all of the men slept in a tent on the roof, and it was very crowded. And uh, the teacher at that time went around, the first interview, um, he went around to where everyone was sleeping and asked them how their practice was doing. So I could hear him with all of these people approaching me. And I was falling asleep all of the time, except for when I was in terrible pain and hating it. But at that point, fatigue was this really difficult problem. And um, I didn't know what I was going to say because I was very embarrassed. You know, I thought, what in the world am I going to tell him and all these people can hear? And actually, Carol Wilson was sleeping on one side of me. That's where we met. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, how horrible. Everyone's going to know I'm falling asleep, as though they didn't know already. <laughs> and, uh, he got to, not Carol, but the woman sleeping on the other side of me, and he said, well, how's your practice doing? And she said, oh, you know, I just fall asleep all of the time. And I thought, oh, thank goodness, you know. <laughs> like, she told him first. And I was expecting this great esoteric response coming from him. And what he said was things like, you know, go throw some cold water on your face and uh, stand up, go outside. All of these very practical things just to change the energy balance. And that's fine. And uh, just for the last thing, in terms of connecting, that is also very helpful. There's a quality of diffuseness in practice, especially as practice moves along that tends to be very disempowering and that's part of the, the state of, of fatigue as well. Um, and we can experience that again and again. I talk about it a lot in terms of my experience in walking meditation where I'll be at one end of the room and I'll see the place, the wall opposite, where I know I'm going to be turning around in a few minutes. And I'll say to myself, okay, I'll be mindful from now until I turn around. But we can't do that. We can only be mindful one step at a time. And even that seemingly noble aspiration uh, is not helpful to the practice because it's like taking my energy body, so to speak, and throwing it to the other end of the room. It doesn't work. We can only be mindful of one step at a time. We can only be mindful of one breath at a time or one moment's experience at a time. And so that, that tendency to, to be diffuse, to be with this breath and kind of getting ready for the next, or to be with this moment's experience and wondering how it's going to change later on, um, disempowers the practice. It actually drains our energy. And so that that sense of aim or connection is born in effect by being able to say, now. Now. And to do that again and again. It's just this one breath. If you're doing metta, it's just this one phrase. Whatever has existed before is irrelevant and we don't have to gear up for whatever may be coming next. It's just right now. And this is is actually something we can do. This works. To be mindful from now until I've walked to the end of the room, it doesn't work. And that's when the clouds really descend. 
But again and again and again, we can renew that uh, perfect attention just for one moment. But it only has to last one moment because we can, we can renew it again. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.